Good morning. I am Scott Peck, and I am sitting this morning in my living room on a very rainy northwestern Connecticut May morning. And you are about to hear one of my more popular lectures, Sexuality and Spirituality. I am quite ambivalent about giving lectures, although less so than I used to be when I first started giving them back about nine years ago. I was very concerned as to whether I was getting into the lecture business because this was what people really needed and what God wanted me to do, or whether I was into it as a kind of narcissistic trip and just for the roar of the crowd. And so the first times I went out to lecture, I agonized over whether this was the right thing. After the third such lecture, I confided my agony to the woman who sponsored it, and she gave me a kind of answer to my dilemma about a month later. She didn't realize that she was answering the dilemma, but she sent me a poem that she had just written, and the poem ended with a rather complicated last line. And that line went, The truth is that I want it. It meaning the truth. The truth is that I want it. And the price I must pay is to ask the question again and again and again. And after reading that, I realized that what I had been looking for was some message from God or something as to whether I should just go out and do this lecture business or not do it. And what I realized after reading that poem was that each time I go out, I'm going to have to ask the question again and again and again. And I have been trying to do it, and the message which keeps coming back for the past nine years is keep going. Now... This is the one that you've been waiting for. Uh, I uh, fell into this public speaking business by accident. Uh, if I'd had any training for it, a Dale Carnegie course or something, I'm sure they would have told me I should begin with a story. Uh, and uh, so I will tell you one about a good uh, Christian lady, fundamentalist, inerrantist uh, kind of stripe who uh, liked pets, and she dropped by her local pet store one day and saw that the owner had gotten in a new parakeet, a very brightly colored, pretty bird. And she got quite excited, uh, and uh, she said to uh, the owner that she wanted to buy the, uh, uh, the new bird. And uh, he said, no, no, knowing her to be a good Christian lady, he said, no, madam, he said, you, you do not want that parakeet. And she said, yes, I do. I love parakeets. They're, they're my favorite of all pets. I do. And he said, no, madam, you do not want that parakeet. And she said, yes, I do. I do. Why can't I have that? I, I love parakeets. Why can't I have it? And he finally explained. He, he said, well, he said, it's not a very nice parakeet, uh, a nice bird. And it really doesn't do much of anything, and it doesn't sing. The only thing he do, it does, he, he said, about every two or three days, it, it says, I'm a prostitute. I'm a prostitute. Well, the good Christian lady's eyes lit up, and she said, oh, that would be no problem at all, because at 
home she had two Christian parakeets who were very experienced praying parakeets. And uh, what she would do is that she would take this new bird home with her and put it in the cage with these two very experienced praying parakeets and they would pray for her and she would be saved. Uh, well, finally, the pet store owner relented with that, and so she got the new bird and took it home and put it in the cage with the two very experienced Christian parakeets, and they immediately went to work praying night and day until finally after about two and a half days, the new bird said, I'm a prostitute, I'm a prostitute. And the one good Christian parakeet turned to the other and said, Our prayers have been answered. <laughs> anyway... Uh, the first time I ever gave this talk, I was worried about the uh, little old Christian ladies in the audience and how they might respond to it. Uh, and uh, in the middle of the talk, a young couple in their early 30s walked out in obvious disgust. Uh, and at the end, one of those little old ladies who was 87, if she was a day, came up to me with tears in her eyes saying that she had been waiting all her life to hear somebody say such things. So much for stereotypes. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, while this talk is not exactly triple X rated, uh, it is certainly uh, parental guidance and discretion uh, required and advised. And so if there are any of you here who do not have your parents' permission to be here uh, this afternoon and you feel you'd like to run out and try and get it, well, feel free to go ahead. Uh, the problem, you see, is that I'm talking about the relationship between sexuality and spirituality and the notion that there even is a relationship between the two of them is shocking to some people, uh, at least to those who have never read the Song of Solomon in the Bible, or as it is more properly entitled, the Song of Songs, that exquisite erotic duet between God and his people. Uh, the problem you see is that there is a particular brand of Christianity which tends to identify sex and sexuality with the devil, and it speaks of the lust of the flesh, and the only possible relationship it could imagine between sexuality and spirituality is one of war, in which one must win out over the other, in which one must be put down uh, by the other. But, of course, my own view is that insofar as there is conflict between the two of them, it is more in the nature of a lover's quarrel or a sibling rivalry, both of which to some extent can be outgrown. Now, let's begin by asking what sexuality is. And right away we run into a scientific stone wall. Uh, here at the end of the 20th century, we know how to blow ourselves off of the face of the earth, but we don't even begin from a scientific point of view to understand what the non-anatomical differences or similarities are between men and women. And uh, I'm afraid that mythology has much more to tell us about the nature of sexuality than does our science. Now, there is a theme in mythology of fear on the part of the gods that human beings are becoming like them. And whether uh, you know it or not, you, all of you are already 
familiar with this theme because it is contained in the third chapter of Genesis where God forbade Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lest they then eat of the fruit of the tree of life and become as one of us. And it's contained again in the 11th chapter where God created the different languages in order to deliberately confound human beings in order to prevent them from completing the Tower of Babel and thereby reaching heaven under their own steam. Now, the basic myth of sexuality is a variant of this same theme. Here at the beginning, human beings are asexual, unified creatures. But as such, they are rapidly gaining in power and about to encroach upon the gods. And so what the gods do before it is too late is they split human beings into halves, into male and female. They split them. And as half-creatures, we are no longer capable of competing with the gods. Yet we are also left feeling incomplete, yearning, for our lost wholeness, forever searching for our other half in order that we might even if just in a moment in the bliss of sexual union re-experience the lost bliss of our godlike totality. So at least according to the myth then, our sexuality arises out of a sense of incompleteness and is manifested by an urge toward wholeness and a yearning for the Godhead. But what is our spirituality if not the same thing? What is our spirituality if not something that arises out of a sense of incompleteness and is manifested by an urge toward wholeness and a yearning for the Godhead? Now, it is not my intent to tell you that sexuality and spirituality are exactly the same thing that they are identical twins, so to speak, and so I often subtitle this talk, Kissing Cousins. But it is my intent to tell you that they are cut from the same cloth, that they arise out of the same kind of ground. And I am not just talking about myth here. I am talking about actual human experience. And so you may remember in the concluding subsection of The Road Less Traveled in the section on love entitled The Mystery of Love, about all those things that I didn't even begin to understand about love, that I wrote, When my beloved first stands before me naked, all open to my sight, there is a feeling throughout the whole of me, all, why? If sex is no more than an instinct, why don't I simply feel horny or hungry? Such simple hunger would be quite sufficient to ensure the propagation of the species. Why all? Why should sex be complicated with reverence? Now, the fact is that sex is the closest that many people ever come to a religious experience. Indeed, it is because it is a religious experience of sorts, I think, is the reason that so many will chase after it with a repetitive, desperate kind of abandon. Often, whether they know it or not, they are searching for God. And is it an accident 
then do you think that even atheists and agnostics at the moment of orgasm will routinely cry out, Oh Christ or Oh God! Now, let me talk a little bit more about orgasm. It's kind of fun. It doesn't get talked about much in a place like this. <clears throat> Some of you may remember that the great psychologist Abraham Maslow uh, decided one day instead of studying sick people to study particularly healthy people, uh, those one in a thousand, one in ten thousand, who seem to have gotten it most together, who seem to have fulfilled, most fulfilled their potential, become most fully human, uh, people he called self-actualized people. And in studying them, uh, he discerned some 18 or so things that they had in common. And one of them was that they routinely experienced orgasm as a religious, even mystical event. Uh, and again, that word mystical is more than an analogy. Throughout the ages, mystics have spoken of the necessity for a kind of ego death as a necessary part of the spiritual mystical journey or even as the goal, the end of the mystical journey itself. And uh, you may remember that the French have traditionally referred to orgasm as le petit mort, or the little death. Now, it is practically prosaic for me to note that the subjective quality of the orgasmic experience is highly dependent upon the quality of the relationship of the partners involved. And so if it is the best possible orgasm that you are after, then the best place to find it is with someone who is deeply beloved to you and not uh, just uh, contrary to what some self-help books say uh, by yourself uh, or just with anyone, but with someone who is deeply beloved to you. But notice something interesting here. While a relationship with a beloved other is necessary to bring us to the very highest mystical heights of the orgasmic experience. Once we reach those heights, we actually lose the awareness of our partner. At that brief peak point of death, we forget who and where we are. And in a very real sense, I think that this is because we have left this earth and entered God's country. As Amanda Kumaraswamy put it, he said, at the moment of mutual climax, each as individuals has no more significance to the other than the gates of heaven for the one within. Or as Joseph Campbell paraphrased it, when one has lost oneself in the rapture of love, the partner is of no more importance than the portals of the temple through which one has passed to the altar. So whether they know it or not, the sexy get religious. Now, how about the religious? Do they get sexy? Well, you better believe it. And once again, it is no accident, I think, that throughout history, most of the very best erotic poetry has consistently been written by monks and nuns. Perhaps many of you are already familiar with the famous Dark Knight poem of St. John of the Cross, but it bears repeating. One dark night, fired with love's urgent longings, ah, the sheer grace 
I went out unseen, my house being now all still. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, ah, the sheer grace. In darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. On that glad night in secret, for no one saw me, with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart, this guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he waited for me, him I knew so well, in a place where no one else appeared. Note the mixing of the sexes in this next stanza. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping, and I caressing him, there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the turret parting his hair, he wounded my neck with his gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself. Laying my face on my beloved, all things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. Now you will note that that final stanza, which describes the mystical union which is possible between human beings and God, is also the finest description of orgasm as anything, any place in literature. I repeat, I abandoned and forgot myself. Laying my face on my beloved, all things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. Now, if this were just the 16th century St. John, it might be tempting to think of him as an exception, a particularly horny little monk from bygone days, sublimated and repressed. So let us instead listen to the words of a late 20th century nun, Janie Gustafson, from her 1978 book entitled Celibate Passion. Although it may seem eternal, she writes, the last night of John of the Cross will eventually break. But for most of us, the suffering breaks us first. Only a very few strong-souled individuals will see the morning's dawn before their death. They are the genuine celibates whose passion drives them ceaselessly through the dark nights to the bridal chamber. There, the increased tension between the human and divine will reach the highest possible intensity before indissoluble oneness. Passion will erupt as in the orgasmic rhythm of lovers pulsing to the same ecstatic delights and ending in blissful union. God's eternal phallic battering ram will at last break through our egotistical barriers. The human will transcend all possible attachments to become open and free, relaxed and expansive, allowing the full deluge of God's passion to explode in the soul's innermost caverns, filling, flooding, and saturating it with new life. Do you find much evidence of uh, sexual repression or unconscious sublimation in those words? No, let me try again. Another passage from the same author. Come to me, O great and terrible God, and let me come to you. Make your presence rest in me. Penetrate my anguish, saturate my emptiness, encompass my longing, 
Devastate my being, overwhelm me with your passion, drown me in your love, that what I know of me may become you, and what I experience of you may become me. Until we reach that moment when no longer will it be possible to distinguish between us. Hold me fast in your embrace. Let me stay with you longer than I dare imagine, closer than my very breath, and so much in love with you that all I want is you. Let me take you in my arms and feel the warmth of joy that burns and welds my being to yourself. Fire me and make me smooth. Shape my edges and sorted ways into your shape and substance until I melt within your love and there become forever fused. Now, I suspect that any illusion you might have had up until this point of monks and nuns as an asexual group of people has been shattered. Uh, it is true that there are some who enter convents and monasteries partly in an attempt to flee from their sexuality, uh, but it seldom works, which is one of the reasons that there is such a high dropout rate among postulants and novices, because the fact of the matter is that the best monk or nun is going to be she or he who loves God the most passionately. And in order to love God passionately, one has to be a passionate sexual person. Well then, how is it that it is just such people who so often choose chastity or celibacy? There are two reasons. The first, if you will pardon the pun, is that sex screws up relationships. As soon as we make of another person a sexual object, there is a profound tendency for us to use him or her. And we've got somewhat differing masculine and feminine styles doing this. As soon as we make of another person a sexual object, there is a profound tendency to use him or her in ways that are covertly, if not overtly, manipulative and self-serving. And so it is that those who firmly resolve to relate with their fellow human beings in an unfailingly healing fashion, usually decide that a highly restrained sexuality such as celibacy or chastity is the price that they must pay, and often they find it is a price that is worth it. And so it is a friend of mine, the novice mistress of a convent, had hanging on her office wall until her superior, for some reason, asked her to take it down, a little wall hanging which said, nuns make better lovers. How's that for a bumper sticker? Now, the problem of sex or sexuality interfering with relationships is particularly intense for those of us who are in spiritual or healing roles. And so it was back when I was still in practice, uh, any time I got on the same spiritual wavelength with any female patient of mine under the age of 90, I had to watch my step. Now, I do not think that this is just Scott Peck's perversity uh, that I am talking about here, because as a friend of mine put it, he said that the sexual and the spiritual parts of our personality lie so close together that it is hardly possible to arouse one without arousing the other. And so it is that you have all heard stories about ministers who run off with the young church organist. And the reason that you have all heard such stories is that often they are true. Uh, 
But the next time you tell one of those stories, I hope you will, in the words of tea and sympathy, remember to be kind. Because the fact of the matter is that ministers and other people in such positions tend to be sitting ducks for such passions. Not that their behavior is necessarily to be blessed, but just remember that they tend to be sitting ducks. Now, talking about the the danger to human relationships of sex and sexuality, you may ask, isn't there any way for sexuality and spirituality to be integrated into a lasting, permanent uh, sort of mystical union and relationship? And the answer is no. Of course, people keep trying. It seems like it ought to be possible. Uh, One of the latest versions of the attempt popular out in California these days is a reversion of uh, what's called tantric yoga. Uh, But as Joseph Campbell again put it, he said, tantric yoga is often like dusting a little curry powder over philandering. Then again, there is the whole American ideal of romantic love, uh, which holds that it ought to be possible somehow for Cinderella to ride off with her prince into an endless sunset of endless orgasms. But uh, of course, you who have read The Road Less Traveled are familiar with what I have to say about the subject as witnessed by the subchapter titled The Myth of Romantic Love, or really be more proper, I should have called it The Illusion of Romantic Love, this I-I relationship. Now, mind you, I think that romantic love is preferable uh, to what preceded it in history, namely a culture of marriage by arrangement. But nonetheless, uh, anyone who believes that the mystical unification of two human partners into a permanent, lasting union is a perpetual possibility is doomed to perpetual disappointment. In fact, it is the search for God in human romantic relationships, which is, I think, one of the greatest problems uh, that we have in this and other cultures. Uh, What we do, you see, is that we look to our spouse or lover to be a God unto us. Uh, We look to our spouse or lover to meet all of our needs, to fulfill us, to bring us a lasting heaven on earth. And it never works, does it? And among the reasons it never works, whether we're aware of it or not, when we do this, we are violating the first commandment, which says, I am the Lord thy God, and thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Now, it is very natural that we should do this. It is very natural that we should want to have a tangible God, one who we can not only see and touch, but also hold and embrace and sleep with and perhaps even possess. But, of course, as I said this morning, God is not ours to possess. We are his or hers to be possessed by. And the first commandment is very explicit. I am the Lord thy God, and thou shalt not have any other gods before me. But nonetheless, we keep doing this. We keep looking to our spouse or lover to be a God unto us, and in the process, forgetting about the true God. And whenever we do this, we fall prey to what I have come to call the idolatry of human romantic love. 
How many of you have done this, have looked to your spouse or lover to be a god unto you and forgotten about the true god and fallen prey to the idolatry of human romantic love? Be honest. Yeah. Uh, how many of you have fallen prey to the idolatry of human romantic love more than once? So the other reason that the profoundly religious so often choose celibacy is that they do not want to be distracted from their love of God. They do not want to fall prey to the idolatry of human romantic love. They know with St. Augustine that you made us for yourself, dear Lord, and we cannot find true rest except in you. And so it is that if their number one romantic relationship is with God, it is possible, it is possible that they may seek or need no other. Now, it is not my intent to make an impassioned plea for celibacy and to urge celibacy upon all of you this afternoon. Uh, I have a greater desire to be popular than that. <laughs> and in fact, I celebrate not only sexuality but sex. I like sex and I like other people to have sex. Uh, about uh, six years ago after several years of working with a rigid, frigid woman in her mid-thirties, uh, I had the opportunity to witness her undergo a sudden and quite profound Christian conversion. And within three weeks of that conversion, she became orgasmic for the first time in her life. Uh, and once again, uh, I ask you to think about that timing and ask, uh, wonder whether it is accidental. Uh, and I remind you of what my friend said, that the sexual and the spiritual parts of our personality lie so close together that it is hardly possible to arouse one without arousing the other. And so I do not think that it is any accident that once this woman became able to give herself wholeheartedly to God, in very short order she became able to give herself wholeheartedly to a human partner, praise the Lord. Similarly, I have a friend who's a priest uh, who uh, uses this phenomenon as a yardstick and tells me that if a conversion occurs in a previously sexually repressed individual and is not accompanied by some kind of sexual awakening or blossoming that he actually has reason to doubt the depth of the conversion. So it is not my intent to urge celibacy upon you, nor is it my intent to make celibacy sound easy. Uh, it ain't. Uh, nor, as a matter of fact, is it my intent uh, to make sex sound easy. Uh, it isn't. Sex is a problem for everyone. Sex is a problem for children. Sex is a problem for adolescents. Sex is a problem for young adults. Sex is a problem for middle-aged adults. Sex is a problem for elderly adults. Sex is a problem for celibates. Sex is a problem for married people. Sex is a problem for single people. Sex is a problem for straight people. Sex is a problem for gay people. Sex is a problem for bricklayers and plumbers. Sex is a problem for dentists and lawyers. Sex is a problem for surgeons and psychotherapists and psychiatrists. And sex is a problem for Scott Peck. 
Indeed, uh, one of my visions of this world is that it is a kind of celestial boot camp, replete with obstacle courses, with obstacles that have been almost fiendishly designed for our learning. And of all the obstacles that God designed for our learning, I think the one that he or she most fiendishly designed is sex, because he built into us, you see, this feeling that we can max sex that we can solve the problem and be forever sexually fulfilled, that we can get over the obstacle. And uh, indeed, uh, for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or maybe even for a couple of years, if we are lucky, we may feel that we have maxed sex, solved the problem of sex. But then, of course, after a while, we change or they change or the whole ball game changes. And once again, we're left trying to scramble over that obstacle uh, with this built-in feeling that we can get over it when actually we never can. But in the process of trying to get over it, we learn a great deal about vulnerability and intimacy and love and how to whittle away at our narcissism. And some of us even get to graduate from boot camp. So it is not my intent to urge celibacy upon you or to make celibacy sound easy or to make sex sound easy, but it is my intent to leave you with the notion uh, that celibacy or chastity, uh, and we can perhaps in the question-answer period talk about the difference between the two, are uh, at least valid options for at least some people, at least a few people here at the end of the 20th century. And I think that I would want to say that to you even if I were a secular psychiatrist and not a religious one because of several experiences that I have had. Uh, one was about eight years ago I was working with a young woman, Ph.D. sociologist, schooled in the best schools of the day. Uh, and uh, I am oversimplifying a terribly complex and serious case, but uh, among her many symptoms was a compulsive need to engage in sexual relations which she neither desired nor enjoyed. It was as if she felt if she didn't have sex at least once a week that she was going to dry up or something. Now, we went through all the usual Freudian psychodynamics trying to get to the root of this symptom without any success until one day the Holy Spirit hit me and I said to her, I said, you don't happen to believe, do you, that a very active sex life is a necessary part of mental health, that it is a sine qua non for mental health, do you? And she said, well, of course. I mean, isn't that the way it is? And this poor woman, schooled in the best schools of the day, uh, felt that she had to compulsively engage in sexual relations which she neither desired nor enjoyed simply to maintain an image of herself as mental health in her mind. And what an extraordinary relief it was for her when after abstaining from sex for three weeks and I gave her a certificate of mental health. Similarly, there is a matter of elderly couples. And the elderly, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but in the past dozen years or so, there's been a whole spate of articles in the psychiatric and psychological literature saying that it is really pretty normal and okay for elderly people to have sexual relationships. Isn't it nice of us to give them permission? 
However, as with any kind of change in outlook, I'm always worried a little bit about the pendulum swinging too far. I'm reminded of one of the very earliest Shel Silverstein cartoons in the Playboy of about 30-odd years ago uh, after they first legalized homosexual relations between consenting adults in Great Britain. And uh, Shell depicted a young homosexual man standing on a street in London saying, first they looked the other way, now they have legalized it between consenting adults, but I for one won't rest until it's mandatory. <laughs> and I am a little worried that now we have so graciously given the elderly permission to have sex that we may tell them that they have to have it whether they like it or not. Uh, and one reason that I am concerned about that in the course of my career, I have run into two elderly couples deeply in love with each other, with very much of an I-thou relationship, which each partner confessed to me individually in private that he or she had lost sexual interest in the other or in anyone else, for that matter. And yet they were continuing to have sexual relationship because they felt that the other partner wanted it. And I got the uh, two of them together, uh, the two partners together, and brought this out on the open. And uh, since I said, neither of you want sex, so why don't you stop? And it was like a veritable revelation to them. They had never considered that it was all right to stop. So I am reminded of that famous passage from Ecclesiastes, which begins, to everything there is a season and a purpose under heaven, and goes on to say a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And just because this is the Bible doesn't mean that it isn't secular as well as spiritual wisdom. I think that sex is a great gift, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is a gift to be picked up by all people at all times in all seasons. Now, let me return to this notion of a romantic relationship between human beings and God. While I think that most everyone would accept the most passionate relationships that human beings can have with God are romantic ones, they would question whether sex or sexuality is actually involved. And of the kind of writings that I have read to you, uh, they would say that the similarity between sexuality and spirituality is more apparent than real, that the sexuality there is simply used as a poetic metaphor uh, for spirituality. At most, they might agree with Alan Jones, who said that sexual love is a robust symbol of a yet more robust love. And I think that there is some truth in this. But I also do not think that it is the whole truth, because shocking as it may seem, I think that there is a genuine sexual element in the relationship between human beings and God. And what this means, if I am correct, is that not only are we human beings sexual creatures, but also that God is, in fact, a sexual being. Why don't I pause for a moment to let that one sink in? Now, that was not what I always believed. Back when I was in college, my favorite quote was that one from Voltaire, uh, where he said, God created man in his own image, 
and then man returned the compliment. Nothing seemed more absurd to me than imagining God in anthropomorphic terms, uh, as an old man with a long white beard or with genitalia. It seemed to me that God must be infinitely different and infinitely more than we can possibly imagine him or her to be. And uh, so he or she is. However, in those years since college, I have also come to realize that the very deepest means that we have to even begin to comprehend something about the nature of God is through a projection onto him or her of the very best of our human nature. And that God is, among other things and above all other things, that God is humane, human-like at its best. And this has something to do with what is meant with God creating us also in his own image. And I have also, in those years since college, come to seriously believe that he not only did, but he continues to create us in his own image, and I am indebted to the Episcopal theologian I mentioned this morning, Robert Capon, for pointing out the obvious logic that since God created us in his own image and since we are sexual creatures, it only stands to reason that God is a sexual being. Now, one reason that that syllogism makes sense to me, in addition to its logic, is that I myself have experienced God as a seducer. Now, some people don't like that word, and if you want to substitute another one in your mind, like lover or wooer, you can. But anyway, obviously, uh, God has succeeded in seducing me, although more often than not, I have run away from him like a frightened, reluctant virgin. Uh, once again, in Capon's words, this sexy God love for us is profoundly seductive, as Capon said. He is a God who is continually on the make. Now, as I mentioned, he could have made sex as secular as breathing or eating, but instead he brushed it with a spiritual flavor. And he did this very deliberately, I think, in order to give us a taste for him because above all else, he wants to lure us to him. Now, this notion of God not only as a sexual but a particularly seductive being is perhaps somewhat supportive of our traditional masculine image of him. Certainly, he does behave with an aggressiveness in the hunt that we have typically associated with males, uh, although I think that this association itself is sexist and uh, women are equally good hunters. But in any case, as Thompson's famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, suggests, he chases after us with a vigor which is matched only by the vigor with which we may flee from him. And so it is that when we are finally found we may experience our conversion, as I suggested in The Road Less Traveled, not necessarily as an oh-joy phenomenon, but as an oh-shit phenomenon. Because we have been trapped, because we have been brought to bay, because we have finally and irrevocably been caught. I was just a couple of months talking ago talking to a man who had just 
such an experience in just that way. And so as a male traditionally has been after our body, so God is after our spirit. And that's what it's all about. Not that he is male, not that she is female, he, she is both and more, but that he is after us, that he wants us, that he loves us beyond belief, and that he intends to have us no matter how far we flee. And our individual struggle is only over how long we are going to stick with our prudish little hang-ups and our narcissistic little reticences before we finally and willingly open ourselves in surrender to him. This is Scott Peck, and I'm back in my living room again. Ordinarily, I end the lecture that you've just heard by playing twice over a marvelous song by Cat Stevens called I Can't Keep It In. And I ask the audience first to listen to the lyrics of the song and imagine them saying those words to their spouse or lover or else their lover or spouse saying them to them. And then the second time I ask them to listen to the lyrics and imagine God singing that love song to them. Reasons of sound and permission we are not able to end that way. I would like to conclude by quoting a little more from literature because as William James put it in the varieties of religious experience, we and God have business with each other. It is not an easy business learning to surrender our ego. But monks and nuns are not the only ones who have spoken of the struggle in sexual terms. Let me finish with the words of John Donne, soldier, politician, and ultimately Anglican priest, husband and father of twelve, who in his holy sonnet number 171 pleaded, Batter my heart, three-personed God, Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. <laughs>